0: I was burgled once, years ago, when I lived in a crappy bedsit on Sing Street. I came home to find my place absolutely destroyed. It looked like there'd been an explosion at a Dolly Parton Christmas special. There was wigs and sequins and fake breasts strewn all over the place. I called the police, and a little later, when there were two big, burly, culty detectives standing somewhat uncomfortably in my flat, surrounded by the debris of a dissolute transvestite, I wasn't sure whether I should be trying to hide the gay pornography under my wigs or hide my wigs under the gay pornography <laughs> and because you see cross-dressing remains one of the last great taboos people always ask me about it they want to know you know why I got into it and the simple answer is because it's fun you know Especially when you're young, because then the job is basically to dress up and run around nightclubs, getting drunk and acting the fool. and honestly, what 21-year-old doesn't want that job? <laughs> but I was also drawn to it because I didn't like the restrictive, constrictive, censorious society that I had grown up in, and drag is transgressive. You know it's balchy, it's uppity, it's discombobulating, it's confronting. It's inherently punk. It's a glittered finger to social convention and restrictive ideas about masculinity and femininity and gender and sex and strength and weakness and power. And the proof of that is in how much it bothers some people. Because even now, drag retains that power to offend the easily offended, which is half the fun, of course. Oh, I may look to you now like some sort of respectable suburban lady, you know, maybe a barrister's wife. (laughs) But when I was younger, I positively reveled in Drag's power to discomfort the comfortable. I was young, and I wanted to change the world, and the only way that I knew how to do that was by dressing up and having fun and not caring what anyone else thought and encouraging everyone else to join me. In the mid-90s, Dublin was changing. It was the early years of the Celtic Tiger before we lost the run of ourselves and the city had a vibrancy it hadn't had before. For the first time in generations, young people were not leaving in their droves and on top of that, other young people were actually arriving. Homosexuality had only just been decriminalized and a gay scene was slowly emerging from the shadows. The dance music explosion had hit Dublin and straight kids started hanging out on dance floors with gay kids and I don't know, suddenly Dublin had possibilities. It was changing, but not fast enough for me. Now, I'd already been running various nightclubs with my partner in crime, designer Niall Sweeney, and one night with our friend Claire, an earthy, bossy, fun straight girl with a mouth like a sailor, we decided to start a club night together. Now, not to make money. You know, there were easier ways to do that than the notoriously fickle world of clubbing. We were interested in fun. In shaking things up, in shaking people up, we wanted to make things and break things and not be boring. Being boring was our greatest fear and not being boring had become our kind of mantra. We also decided, no doubt fueled by booze and one-upmanship, that it should be a fetish club. Not that any of us had any particular interest in or indeed any knowledge whatsoever of the fetish scene, but that didn't stop us. In fact, in those pre-internet days, we weren't even bloody sure if there was a fetish scene in Dublin, but that was exactly why it seemed like a good idea, because it wasn't boring. Now, the first job was to find a venue, which was relatively easy in those days when there were still plenty of dingy, half-empty venues around with owners willing to let anyone try anything to fill them while they waited for some developer to come along and buy the place to build offices or a shopping centre. Our problem was keeping the venue after they saw what we were up to. (laughs) We went to three different venues before we found one that didn't throw us out after the first party. And it was in the Docklands. Back before the shiny glass and steel apartments and offices, back when it was a dark and seedy part of the city full of warehouses and hookers, we called the club Gag, and for no other reason than it seemed like a good punchy name to us, and we put full stops after each of the letters, again, for no good reason except that we liked how it looked, and so it looked like it was an acronym for something, At one point, we tried to put an ad in the back of the Irish Times for the club, figuring that that would be the paper of choice for the perverts, set. But Breda, in the advertising department of the Irish Times, said she couldn't take the ad without knowing what gag stood for. I was taken by surprise, and thinking on my feet, I told her it stood for the very first thing that came into my head, which happened to be Gaze Against Germaine Greer. (laughs) And Breda was happy with that. Now, we knew we wanted to do performances at this club, performances that would gently shock people, but at the same time make them laugh. Something that would you know, they would gleefully recount to open-mouth friends the next day. Now, I do not remember now who first suggested that Niall should pull a string of pearls from my ass, but <laughs> whoever it was, I, as usual, agreed to do it, because... Well, it wasn't boring, and I've always been easily led. And anyway, it wasn't really such a crazy idea as far as I was concerned. You know, the legendary performance artist Lee Bowery, a personal hero of mine, had given himself enemas during some of his performances, and once, during a student summer in London, I had seen legendary New York performer lactating Lady Hennessy Brown, whose act involved, well she wasn't called lactating Lady Hennessy Brown for nothing. (laughs) And after she did exactly what it says on the tin, uh, she then did the crab and blew out flaming torches with a part of the body not usually known for blowing. (laughs) And so, shortly afterwards, I found myself perched on all fours on a stage in a club in the Docklands, while Niall pulled a six-foot-long string of pearlescent beads from my rouged posterior, (laughs) accompanied by the musical quaverings of France's national treasurer singing Non, je ne regrette rien. (laughs) We called the performance Pearl Harbor and (laughs) (laughs) it was actually rather beautiful. Or at least it was when the beads were on their way out. But when they were on the way in, it was a different story. I'm squatting in a cold, cramped backstage toilet with lubricant in one hand and a handful of cheap display beads in the other. But, you know, people really went for it. You see, I think if you go to a club and you see a performance like that, well, it really gives you permission to let your hair down. Now, as time went on, we had to get creative about what was coming out of my ass. And so I have squatted over an inflatable globe and squirted out milk to the dulcet tones of Karen Carpenter singing I'm on top of the world. (laughs) I've douched with paint, non-toxic of course, kids, and sprayed out onto canvases that were then auctioned off to the assembled purpose. (laughs) I've had mincemeat shoved in one end, a handle turned on my back and a string of sausages pulled out the other. (laughs) i have even, dressed as a secretary, perched at her typewriter, lip-syncing to Dolly Parton's 9 to 5, while a suited Nile pulled the lyrics of the song from my shiny rump like a perverse karaoke machine. <laughs> they just the chorus. <laughs> After all, it was my ass, not the channel tunnel. <laughs> the club was a great success. And once a month, for 18 months, we would spend hours painting the walls with silly sex words, hanging meat hooks from the ceilings, filling old shower cubicles with foam and stapling and gaffer taping and generally destroying the place. And every month, more and more people would turn up. There were the professional perverts, you know, straight women in shiny latex, gay men in leather harnesses, lesbians in sharp suits with fat cigars, straight men in studded collars, transvestites in tie-high PVC boots. But there were also curious clubbers in homemade outfits, nervous office workers in football gear, adventurous farmers up from the country, and excited, Dutch-couraged regular straight guys who'd heard something wild was going on down the docks. And if that regular straight guy seemed easygoing and fun and was prepared to strip to his underpants, we let him in. (laughs) And inside, you'd find an elderly transvestite would be chatting at the bar with a nonchalant straight woman with her husband on a nonchalant leash. While shaven-headed gay boys in rubber and tattoos made out on the dance floor and a straight businessman in a corset engaged in conversation with legendary Dublin DJ Tony Walsh, who was holding forth while lying in a bath full of jelly. (laughs) Dublin had never seen anything like it and we were the talk of the town now half the stories weren't true of course but we weren't going to disabuse anybody of their fevered notions in a bar one evening a guy told us that he had heard on very good authority that claire had had to get the ceilings of her house reinforced because of all the sex contraptions she had hanging from them she (laughs) loved that (laughs) of course all the fevered gossip was good for business but Eventually, it also brought us unwanted attention. You know, the tabloids wrote salacious, faux-shocked stories, culminating with the British tabloid, The Sunday People, splashing on a breathless front-page story, Dublin, Sex Orgy Sensation, a headline which somewhat oversold the party, if I'm honest. <laughs> but the press attention also brought us closer scrutiny from the Guardie, who didn't really seem to know exactly what they should do about us, or indeed if they should do anything at all. But then, when the building itself was earmarked for sale to a developer as the Celtic Tiger started getting its teeth into the Docklands, well, it did seem like the writing was finally on the wall. It was time to move on and do something new. But we didn't move on with any sadness, because in our own weird way, we had succeeded. Dublin was changing, and we had been part of that change. And we'd done it in the only way that we knew how, you know, by dressing up and having fun and giving two glittered fingers to the society we were rebelling against.